Hi everyone. Hello. It's Witchy Bites. Episode 23. <laughs> 23. Oh yeah. And talking to you today about plants. Trees. Trees, yes. Specifically. <laughs> Definitely specifically trees. And what's been going on with you, Hanny? Been listening to a lot of metaphysical kind of podcasts, ghost stories, that kind of thing. I don't know. I'm trying to remember. I think I had some pretty crazy dreams over the eclipse. Oh, yeah. How was the eclipse for you? Um, Intense. Yeah. You know, Cancerian and all that. But, yeah, I don't have – I have, keep a dream journal and I did write some down. But I don't remember what they are now. <laughs> so, yeah, but I can get them out later and talk to you about it. Cool. But, um, yeah, I'm just trying to think what else I've been up to. What about you? Yeah, the eclipse was pretty crazy. I felt like the energy really building. And then when the eclipse started, it was just complete calm. And then it just felt very much new beginnings after that. It like felt like a clean slate. So it was it was intense but good. I was totally exhausted. I didn't I didn't see it. I think I saw the moon. Like I noticed that it was almost time for it to start rising, and I was going to go out and have a look. And then by the time it was actually starting to happen, I was like, no, I'm, ex- I'm exhausted. Like, I was so tired. You didn't miss much. It was really cloudy. <laughs> I did hear, I heard a couple of people did hear here in Tasmania, they did see it. Mm. But the cloud cleared at like 10 minutes before it was like at maximal eclipse. So, <laughs> Oh, that's lucky. It wasn't yeah. like that in the Huon because okay. I was outside. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I that was, sucks. I was seeing a little, like I was there and I wanted to take a photo and I couldn't get one. And um, uh, so I just started saying a prayer to my ancestors just during the eclipse itself because, mm. you know, world's being closer and stuff. And then all of a sudden it cleared for like one minute and I got a photo. <laughs> oh, wow. Cool, and cool. Then, and that was it. So that was it. <laughs> it was a blurry photo because I didn't have time to focus, but yeah. there was just enough cloud cover to Obscure part. it. Yeah. And then they parted at the precise moment. Oh, that's cool. Apparently it was better in Hobart, but itself. Yeah. 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 Except for me who was exhausted. From <laughs> anyway, we've got it. We, this is, so this is the lunar eclipse. The solar eclipse hasn't happened yet. Not yet. Not it will yet. Prob- I think it will like the day this comes. Yeah, I'm thinking it might even just be before. The 14th or the 15th, I think. Can't- I can't remember what the whiff. I can- yeah, I can't. The 15th is anyway. Um, and I can't remember if it's the 14th for the Northern Hemisphere times later times than ours <laughs> and the 15th here. Yeah. Um, so yes, probably by the time this comes out, you may all be able to have a look at the solar eclipse. So do, (laughs) don't get sleepy. Um, but yes, so we're talking about the lunar. Yeah. That's just happened. Yeah. Did you do anything? Cause there's like some people that are like, oh, don't charge your crystals or don't do any of that stuff, which I did anyway. Cause I think that it's still fine but uh I actually generally don't do that okay I if I'm going to charge something I charge it myself yeah my own energy yeah or cleanse maybe more but more so than charge yeah but um I wouldn't see any problem with it personally yeah me either it's an eclipse it you I just think it's heightened energy if you're if you feel it's okay and you know how to use it then do yeah (laughs) that's how Mm. I felt about Mm. it too 
Yeah. Yeah, I still made moon water and I still did all of that stuff. So I slept. <laughs> it's like my superpower. <laughs> Yay. You gotta have a superpower. It might as well be something good. Sleeping well, sleeping is great. <laughs> but it's a really boring superpower. You can touch your feet. <laughs> Alright. Well, did you wanna go first today since it's usually me that goes first? Sure. So today I'm talking about um Silver Elm. I was sitting down to think about what I wanted to do my topic on today and I just said I want to do a tree. And I had I didn't know what you were doing, but I had thought that I wanted to do a plant at least or a tree before that. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, and I just put it out there. I was like, what am I supposed to talk about? Like, someone tell me, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and, yeah, this is what I got. I got Silver Elm. So let me think. Silver Elm, the first thing I thought of, the first thing I should say is that in the United States, in the Northern Hemisphere, parts of the United States, and maybe, no, just the United States. So North America, that's known as a field elm. They don't call it a silver elm, which I thought was really interesting and also made it really confusing when I Googled stuff because I was like, there's nothing. Well, there's not not a lot or there's little mentions of it. It's like, what, 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 what? Yeah, so... In Europe, it's known as a silver elm, and here in Australia and New Zealand, it's known as a silver elm. What, now, listen to me butcher this. <laughs> the, the Latin name is Ulmus minor variegatia. Ulmus minor variegatia. Ooh. Did I say it right? Sounds good. Yay. <laughs> I'll go with that. See the zoology major over there. Whereas I'm just trying to say words. Okay, so it's a shade tree and it's a variegated elm. Which I think means it has the variegated means it has the different colour leaves, like the two colours. I think that's what variegated means. I can Google it. Liz is <laughs> nodding, so I'm going to go, cool. <laughs> and it's called, here it's called the silver arm because it's got the white flecks on the leaves and it gives it a silvery kind of look to, to the tr- tree overall. It's a shade tree and it can grow really big. It grows between 8 and 12 metres and it has an 8 metre width. And it usually reaches its full height after 10 years, so it takes it ages to grow. Okay, so this is a little bit about elms in general. They're deciduous or semi-deciduous trees, with the silver elm being fully deciduous, I'm pretty sure. They can grow up to 100 feet or 30 metres, so the silver elm only gets up to 8 to 12 metres, so you can I can't calculate that into feet off the top of my head. And they grow really wide, so they've got their shade tree, so they grow out and up. Most elms have oval-shaped leaves with a serragated edge. So that's how you can tell it's an elm. I thought that was pretty cool. I could understand that. <laughs> I thought that was great. Um, there are 35 species of elms and none of them are native to Australia. Big surprise. But the elm trees that are here are pretty important, which I'll get to that. They have deeply ridged bark as well. So when you see elm tree bark, it's the ones that look like it's little squares. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's got like they're always patterned and they always run in a certain way. And I think different elms have different kinds of patterning. And I can't remember what the silver elms are. I think they've got more vertical in their ridges. And I also read somewhere that it makes it look like they have scales, which I thought was kind of cool. It's a scaly tree. There are species of flowering tree and they bloom in spring. 
And when they're in bloom, they're bright yellow, which I also thought was really cool. The seeds are encased in, in an oval papery structure called a Samara. Samara. Liz is making a face as if she knows what I'm talking about, which is good. The leaves are oval with jagged edges and they have a pointed end. And I think the silver elm had like a more pointed end than some of the others. And the leaves are between six and, no, four and six inches, which is 10 to 12 centimetres. And they're about seven centimetres or 2.5 inches wide. So they're like almost round leaves with like a little pointy end on them. So the silver elm has the white flecked leaves, which give it the silvery effect, which is why where it gets its name from here. And I think it's called the field elm because it grows in fields. That, Logical. That, that, that's a guess. I didn't actually look that up because I looked up silver elm before I went, oh, they're the same. So the form of the tree, it's rounded. It's just said it was rounded, so I'm assuming that means it's the way it forms is in a rounded shape. And it develops multiple trunks. Oh, so that's quite cool. that's quite normal for it to have a few main trunks. Um, it has an open canopy. Strong branches grow upwards and outwards, and it resembles a V shape. So it really does grow up and out and has at least two main trunks. And it can become really, really big. So, you know, I think I said 100 feet before, so that, that's, that's a tall tree. Yeah, 200 feet or 30 metres. Sort of In autumn, yeah, it, it, it said it had sunshine yellow flowers. Yeah, I thought that was cute. It can grow quite well in a lot of different areas. It has, um, it's adaptable to a wide range of site conditions was what I read. But it does best in moist, well-drained soils that are acidic to slightly alkaline. And one thing I do know is most plants don't actually like really alkaline soil. They actually like it slightly acidic. But neutral pH is usually what most things grow well at. So that it likes slightly alkaline is a little bit unusual. And it has a good tolerance for air pollution, which is kind of cool. So that means it'll grow um, in lots of different places. I read that it's used in parklands a lot. So they or in people not so much in people's gardens, but you know, in big estates and stuff. But things that are near the city. So it's used for like street plants and stuff like that. Yeah, so near car exhaust. Exhaust, yeah. Yeah. I also found on Wikipedia a great article about elms in Australia. Because elms in Australia are actually pretty significant. So the cultivation of elms in Australia began in the first half of the 19th century, so 18, before 1850, of course, when the British got here. So it said in the first half of the 19th century with the British settlers or, as I say, invaders. And why this is significant is because elms in the Northern Hemisphere were dying, dying out due to Dutch elm disease. So all of their elms, not just silver elms, but a whole bunch of their, their elms of a significant age and just it was called a pandemic so in the articles i read it said that there was a pandemic and that all the elms were dying i didn't want to read too much about how the dutch elm disease like what happens because it sounded like it, they just died like they got this disease and it, they just died but it was passed physically from one to the other so when they were planted in big, big rows one elm would give this to the next one and the next one and the next one it's uh, why it's so important to care about 
quarantine rules. Like I know it's really easy for people to think, oh, my shoes have dirt on them, but whatever. But you can actually carry diseases on Really the- horrible ones. Yeah, so that's why these things are are important. And this is also why, you know, Australia gets a bad rap for, you know, having really tough laws, but we, we don't have diseases. And we don't have this disease, which is why it's really significant. Yeah. So Dutch elm disease isn't in Australia. So basically whole populations of elms are gone. So they lost all of their elm trees. So this was in Europe and in the, in North America. Yeah. So we have some quite significant elms in Australia that are over 100 years old. Well, no, 18, 200 years old since settlement basically and they're listed as really significant because they're now some of the oldest trees there are because all the others were wiped out Yeah, due to the Dutch elm <laughs> disease. Yeah, so we have some of the most um, significant specimens of elm trees in the world. Elms were listed in a nursery catalogue for Hobart in, 18, in 1845. So you could buy elm seedlings, I suppose, or even seeds to plant in your colonial garden in Hobart in 1845. So that was one of the first mentions of elm trees in, in Australia. Wow. It was here. Woohoo! Some elm species have become naturalised in parts of Australia. Um, Dutch elms have become naturalised in Tasmania. I was going to look up what that means, but I don't know. <laughs> it means that they're, they're growing wild, really, rather than We have just, wild elms. Yeah, I think is my understanding of naturalised. I um, knew she'd know. So we have naturalised Dutch elms in Tassie. They've also become naturalised in South Australia, Queensland, New South Wales, the ACT and Victoria. So the silver elm is a smooth-leafed elm, it said in this article, and they're not as common in Australia as other elm species, but they're the most common smooth, smooth-leafed elm in Australia. Smooth-leaved elm. <laughs> Good thing we're not doing inebriated tales. <laughs> Maybe we should be. Some of the smooth-leaved, smooth-leaved elms have become naturalised in the ACT, so cool. in Australian Capital Territory. So they're growing wild there, but not in Tassie, unfortunately. I also read that they were called tartan elms, which was interesting, but I only found one mention of that. They were said to be first cultivated in France in 1772 and there are two notable silver elms in the Royal Botanic Gardens of Hobart. Ah. They're out in like that lawned area. Yeah. Like in, yeah. I can picture where and it is. And they're two, if you saw a picture for people who are from Hobart, you, you'd know which the area of the botanical gardens they're in and I was like I know I've sat under those two trees yeah. <laughs> and they're just next to each other and they're two they're these two are um notable for their age so they're listed as notable silver elm trees now because of Dutch elm disease so I thought that was really cool okay so that's some of the more mundane stuff I have and now I'll get on to a bit of magical metaphysical kind of stuff so elm trees, so this is mainly about elm trees in general, not so much silver elms because it was hard to find just silver elms. Yeah. Just oh, one last last sort of non-metaphysical thing was there is a witch elm, which after I'd done most of this research I was like, oh, I should have found a witch elm. <laughs> they're, they're shorter and rounder 
And um, I don't know why they're called witch elms. I didn't get that far. Okay, so elms in general are popular in myth around the world. They're mentioned heaps in a lot of different areas. They symbolise in general man's or person's achievement of goals or victory. So they're about, um, you know, striving and doing well for yourself. They're associated with the cycle, with the life, death and rebirth cycle as well. And it's the tree of Hermes and it's consecrated to Saturn and I'm a Capricorn, so. Ooh. Yeah. It didn't explain what it meant that it was consecrated to Saturn, but it's, I took it to mean that it was a sacred tree or a special tree yeah. to Saturn. However, in Northern Europe, the elm was thought to be as, was thought of as the tree of goblins that guarded the graves of the dead. So I'm assuming in a few places they were planted in graveyards as well. The elm is considered a feminine plant in German mythology. And in ancient Greece and Rome, the elm was the tree of, now I'm going to butcher this name, Oneros or Oneros. He was the son of night and the god of dreams. Oh. Yeah, which is, I think, why... I was told to look into silver elms. Uh-huh. The elm was the tree of sleep, dreams, and death. And due to this powerful meaning within the Greek and Roman cultures, the elm was said to have oracle powers. So the tree was thought to be psychic and to have the abilities to predict the future. Huh. But it didn't say how the tree would predict the future, but I thought it was cool. Maybe you sleep under it. Probably. <laughs> it does have a lot to do with sleeping. The Druids associated the elm tree with the goddess and the divine feminine. And in heraldic, heraldic symbolism, the tree represented friendship, protection, support, romantic love, and love amongst all people. Another thing I read was that I think in Italy and France, the, the elm came to represent partnerships because they used to plant them in the... I was going to say graveyards, in the vineyards. Oh. So they planted the vines to grow up, the elm trees. So that's where the partnership thing came from. So they plant the elms, the elm will grow, and then they plant the grapes, the grape vines. And instead of having what we have now, like trellises and lines and stuff, they grew them on trees. That is so cool. So that's where the the partnership, the marriage and the love association sort of came through because they'd be supporting the vines and they got – the all-important wine from the vines, from the grapes. So that's why this this strong bond kind of symbolism came in, which I thought was pretty cool. Huh. Elms have long roots, roots and are firmly anchored into the ground, which also led to the, the elm having a symbolism for strength and longevity. Uh-huh. So the same kind of thing because it grew grows pretty tall and quite deeply the roots grow quite deeply and there was an association with strength and I suppose that attainment of goals like they they live a really long time and it takes them a really long time I think it was emphasized in a few articles that it took about 10 years for them to get to any kind of height at all so it was that endurance thing that came through the elm's also seen as quite a magical tree it said that it was it brought order Order to chaos, courage to the fearful, and solutions to those facing difficulty. The elm is seen as the great protector, and it exercised evil. So, as with another podcast, yes, there's the, the it's used in exorcisms. 
There's the, the expulsion <laughs> of evil that seems to come in with just about anything when you talk about plants. Yes, there is an exorcism thing here too. Um, and it was, yes, and I think that was also because it was often planted in the front of in front of ha- churches and houses, but earlier it said about the graveyard. So I don't know if harbouring goblins and exorcising demons go very well together. There's a bit of a competition, there's a bit of a conflict there, but different mythologies, different uses. What else have I written down? It was seen as the tree of dreams and dreams being a divine gift meant that elms were thought to guide us in our sleeping journeys. Oh. Yeah. So they saw the dreams as important as, as like not prophecy but you went on journeys in your dreams and because the dreams came from the gods it meant that um, the elm was important and had those magical properties associated. Okay. Which is interesting. I haven't, I hadn't thought of dreams as being sent from. I don't know why, like sent from a god or a, or anything like that before. Um, it also said the elm is the great liberator. It frees us from our past, old beliefs, limitations, and touches our hearts, allowing us to expand our consciousness and grow into something greater. This all comes when we allow the elm to guide our dreams. Oh. So it was a protector, a purifier, and a liberator, and it helps lead us to self-realization. Elm is also the birth tree for those born between January 12th and 24th and July 15th to 25th. <laughs> and the last few interesting facts. Elm is used in backflower remedies. Oh. I didn't get a chance to to see what it did, mm-hmm. but I'm assuming it was it would do things like to help you feel safe or it would help you sleep. Mm-hmm. give you good dreams, stuff like that, but I didn't actually look that up. Elms are also said to be the abode of fairies as opposed to goblins. But the last thing, which I thought was really interesting, so the seeds from the elm tree are actually really nutritious. They have a lot of protein in them. But there was a massive famine in Norway in 1812 and supposedly <laughs> the Norwegian peasantry, like the rural people, they ate the seeds, but they also ate the bark. So they'd take the bark off the tree and boil it and just eat it, and that was all that they had to eat, and it stopped them from dying. Oh, my God, that's awful. Mm. But the elm tree saved their lives. Wow. So it's a lifesaver as well as everything else. Wow. Do not eat bark from an elm tree because it could actually kill you. <laughs> but they did, and they lived very happy lives after the famine was over. But, yeah, Norway in 1812, they ate elms to live. Wow. Hmm. Just a disclaimer. We refer to our disclaimer. We're just librarians. Please don't eat anything that we tell you talk about at all. Don't eat anything that you know is not food. Yeah, do your research. Make sure you identify things properly and uh, don't just take our word for it because we're just researching this. We don't know anything And this more. was also 1812. Yeah. We don't know <laughs> if they died horribly from eating elm bark. That's true. <laughs> That's true. They might not have recorded it. No. It's very true. I mean, it's like I, I've read stories about, um, I think it was in the 1600s, H- Holland is, and the Netherlands are associated with tulips, but there was a huge famine there and, and the tulip bulbs became worth more than gold because people were eating them. Wow. Because that's all they had. Yeah. So at one point, yeah, they were worth more than gold because there were no tulip bulbs because everyone had eaten them. They also could have died, though, so don't eat tulip bulbs. <laughs> Just do your research. 
And that's all there is about elm trees from my short bit of research. That was that was really interesting, Hannah. Yes, and I know which ones are the silver elms because I've sat under them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I really like that. I love that we've got these two really significant old elm trees in our botanical gardens. Silver yeah. elm trees. Yeah, that's gorgeous. We'll have to do a picnic or something and go sit under them, maybe when it's warmer. Yeah, so like not for the next four months. <laughs> not but while we it's will. Winter. We will. <laughs> okay, so I'm talking about she oaks, which are a native plant here. So And they're not shokes and do not Google that ever. <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah. I'm just gonna move on. So one of the tricky things about plants that are particularly native to Australia is there isn't actually a lot of information on their magical properties. So this is going to be a little bit about a discussion about the the science behind it, like its habitats, that kind of thing. There is some Indigenous information which I'll be sharing and also uh, there are some people that have put together, like there's a a Druid blog that I found and they talked about she-oaks there and their magical properties and I don't actually agree with it. But so this is where it's it's going to be interesting, I guess. Before you start, I have a question. Yeah. Are she oaks related to other oaks? No. That's, so I, That's what I thought. So I thought I'd point that out. <laughs> she oaks are not like other oak trees. Okay. No, they got the name. I was going to mention it a bit later on, but uh, they Sorry. got the common name she oak because of the way the wood looks. Like it resembles an oak tree. So they called them she oaks for that reason. They're also known as Australian pines in the US. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, I didn't know that either. They're the same tree. Okay, cool. Yeah, so um, and they, they uh, what am I going to say? They're not pine trees. They're not related to pines at all. They're not conifers. What are they related to? <laughs> they are their own family. They're their own there's nothing else quite like them. So their their uh, family name is – now this is where it's going to get really tricky because some of these names are big. Cash- That's why I only <laughs> said one in mine. <laughs> I'm going to try and hit all of them. Okay, so Cacheriniaceae. It's, it's a little bit hard to determine how many trees are included in that family, like how many species. It's about 91 in that family, but like I read so many different things that had different numbers. So it's, yeah. It was the same for the, for elms. They said between 30 and 40 were in that family because there were so many variegation, like variegated different cultivars uh, and people had bred them. So it's not quite 91, but yeah, same kind of thing. They were like between 30 and 40. It's like, how do you not know? Yeah. They don't know. <laughs> well, one one thing I read was like 60, another thing was 80, and then there oh. was 91. But oh. like I, there was time differences. And mm. one of the tricky things about this family is that with genetic testing and stuff, they've been able to split it out further. So oh, I have something else to say on that. I'm doing in my course, I'm doing the herbal immersion. They're saying that at the moment, like right now, because of DNA testing, they're changing all of the plant families, like some of them really extensively. So we could go from 91 to like three and some families they've done that with. So at the moment they're going through and changing the names of like all the plants because they're genetically testing them. So interesting. That is crazy. Yeah. Well, I think they've done this family more extensively. So so originally they were just one whole 
like genre 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 <laughs> god i'm kind of in speech today but now it's been broken down into four oh. so there's alakasharina kasharina sethostoma and gymnostoma so there's four Generally, the family of she-oaks can be found in various places around the world, but mostly in the Southern Hemisphere, like they're primarily in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, We have Africa, Australia, Southeast Asia, and then like Malaysia to Polynesia. So like it's it's kind of that area. There are some species that have now become invasive to other countries. Yay. And that includes Argentina. Cuba, China, Egypt, Israel, Brazil, South Africa, and Southern United States, particularly Florida and Hawaiian Islands. That's so interesting as well because usually in Australia we think of other plant species being invasive. It's very interesting to think, oh, you know, a plant that's native here is now invasive in other places. Go us because we never do that. True. Uh, It was in other places. I just didn't write them all down because there was quite a few. So I think because the wood is quite good, like it's quite a hard wood, resembles oak, obviously. So people have introduced them to other places. Yeah. And they have done quite well there. Yeah. So they're evergreens and they have long needle-like photosynthetic branches. So I do actually have some here, which Hannah can look at. Uh, But you can't, you'll have to look at photos. I'll put some up. But they look kind of like pine needles, but they have like these little segments in them, as you can see. Yeah, but they do look kind of like pine needles. One of the things about these uh, branchlets is that um, they drop them and they drop them on the ground and they create like a blanket of needles, which is a weed suppressor. So nothing grows underneath them, which is really interesting. And I thought maybe we can use them in our gardens, like in our garden beds. Yeah. So the trees can be monoecious, which means that they have separate male and female bits on the same plant, which is what I think this one is. Um, you can see the tips are like kind of rigid. And then down here you can see that there's a little cone forming. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. They can also be dioecious, which is distinct male and female plants. Oh, wow. So, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's really cool. So a lot of the ones around the uni are that. They've, you'll look at them and some will have cones and some won't, and that's the difference between the males and the females. So Yeah, me not knowing anything, I think they were almost different plants. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, like, when I did botany, we were standing and doing a count of all the at the uni of all the different um, she-oaks that were in a certain area. And I remember the lecturer saying, why do some have cones and some don't? And I like, like hesitantly put my hand up because I never answer anything. And I was like, boys and girls. And he was like, correct. And I was like, wow, the first time I've been right. I spoke and it was right. (laughs) For once, normally I'm wrong and people just think I'm weird. Um. (laughs) I get that. I get that. Even at uni, it's like, I don't want to put my hand up. Totally. The fear of peers thing. Okay. And so, uh, and there's like this joke about how the, I saw online about the boys being called he oaks instead of she oaks. And allegedly it's a thing, but I think it was just a a joke. I still like it though. Yeah. (laughs) Call them he oaks. So this one here, I think is a, a female plant. So it's a, you can see that it's doesn't have the male bits and all these things are turning into cones. So. Yeah. That's a dude one. 
And oh, this, is, this one I think has both on one plate. It doesn't now because I knocked it off. <laughs> it's now a dude. It's now a dude. <laughs> and that one's a chick. <laughs> Hang on, does that mean they're hermaphrodites that could be either? I shouldn't say that. Uh, well, it was interesting that they they do use language like that, which is okay. not really used for people anymore. No, I'm not meaning people at all. Um, so, like, flowers, for example, are considered bisexual because they have the male and female reproductive bits in the same part of, in the flower. So these are different because they have separate bits. bits. Not in the same flower. That's right, or, yeah. Or structure of the plant. Like, these are all separate little, not leaves, but... Like needles, pine needles. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So mono- I'm not scientific. Liz <laughs> is the science one. It doesn't mean I'm good at it. Uh, so mono, two sexes, one plant. Dio, two distinct plants. Right. Yeah. And then they also have um, infrutescences, which means fruit Whoa. derived from the ovaries of inflorescences so these what's an inflorescence (laughs) the floral part like the flower okay so all these cones that you can see are starting to form they start off like flowers okay and then these cones are actually fruit yeah that they're not they're not like pine cones they're actual fruit cones they're fruit bodies can you teach me biology (laughs) (laughs) i'm really out of practice (laughs) sorry hannah you're probably not getting much of the microphone (laughs) We so do, yeah. we do the best we can. <laughs> All right. So um, so the cones are like acorn size, which I guess goes nice with the oak thing, and some of them are spiny. So these ones aren't, but um, there are some that you can get that are really spiky, uh, which are the ones that I have on my block. Um, so these are from Flat Rock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it looks similar to a conifer cone, but it's it's not. It's an actual fruit, and they're edible. Oh, cool. Yeah, so the seeds are edible and the green cones, if they have green ones, see how that one's a green one? Yep. That one's edible as well. Oh, wow. So know your species. Don't just eat <laughs> Don't eat anything stuff. that we talk about ever unless it's like actually a food. Just just keep it at that. If we talk about coffee, you can have coffee. But if we talk about eating tulips or bark or cones from a she-oak, don't, even if they say they are. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) Unless it's an actual food. All right. So the other thing about them is that they have in their roots, they have a symbiotic relationship with nitrogen-fixing bacteria. So the root hairs of the the she-oaks become infected with bacteria and then they form nodules and these nodules allow for nitrogen fixing. So they're really oh, good wow. for poor soil, like legumes are. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So That is exactly what legumes do. Yeah. So, yeah, so these are, this part of the reason why they are so prolific is that they can – You mean invasive. Invasive. <laughs> is yeah, they can, yeah. you know, fix the soil and so it's – growing quite poor soil. Is exactly. that the same kind of relationship as, like, certain trees with the mushrooms? They get infected with well, – not infected, but they have the spores and stuff in yep. the soil and that's why yeah. <laughs> they grow around those certain – so the mushrooms grow around certain trees. Yeah. Same kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. If sort it's, of. If it's symbiotic, it means that they both benefit from, from it. it. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. These plants are really important because they are very hardy and they can grow in a variety of environments, including those with environmental stresses such as poor soil and low water environments. So these can be found anywhere from the tropics to the desert 
to subtemperate or temperate environments and they can grow like these ones I picked off the actual rock they were growing in a small wow. little bit of dirt on the rock and the roots were really shallow oh. it's really cool <laughs> does that mean they grow quite fast um do you know it I don't know if they grow some of them grow really fast. Like one of them grows like 80 centimeters a year. Whoa. Yeah. But I think it depends on the species. So there's okay. like coastal species, which I'll talk a little bit about a bit later. But okay. yeah, there are different species. Yeah. Cause yeah. I'm just thinking of, yeah, with the, particularly the silver elm, but the elms grow really slowly. Yeah. In comparison. And they've got really deep roots. There's yeah. straight down. You said these are shallow. So Very they, shallow. So yeah. they grow. Vert- horizontally more horizontally but not quite i think it depends on the environment like if mm. they have a really good environment it's different but yeah they yeah. can grow very shallowly Shallow. yeah. yeah i think i think elms would just die <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, well i noticed that like the only other species that seemed to do the same they were like um uh native cherries sort of growing on the rock face as well so i think i'm gonna have to do an episode on native cherries as well Ooh. at some stage i don't even know what they are so please oh my god they're fucking amazing <laughs> Wait, is this just going to become like a podcast about trees and <laughs> Possibly. Well, I want to talk about stuff that's in our environment because – It's different. Yeah, and mm. we don't know the answers and we can we can experiment with them and we mm. can meditate on them, which I'm going to get us to do a little bit later. Because we were also talking about how plants – this is sort of off topic – but plants speak in inverted commas and they – Particularly, you've said plants have, have spoken to you at different times. Yeah, I've had messages. Yeah, yeah, so I think that's really important for us in Australia, really, because in doing this kind of work, as in witchcraft or, or working with nature in that way, it's not something that we do because it's it's we've gotten traditions from Europe or or the Northern Hemisphere, and and we're trying to foist them into our environment. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it does. And I think it's important for us to, yeah, to to work with the plants that are here, invasive or not invasive. So one of the plants that I have a really close relationship with is the King Billy Pine, which is unfortunately named, I guess, in some ways. Mm. Um, but it's a very – it has this real rugged, ancient feel to it. And that's one of the trees that speaks, that actually speaks to me and like has given me messages to give other people, which is really weird. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have King Billies on your property? No. So they only grow in really uh, high mountainous regions. Alpine. Okay. Yeah. Sort of alpine. They are alpine species and they're, and they are really vulnerable to things like fire. So they could potentially be wiped out. There is now, this is for Liz. I think I may have told this to you, but people in Hobart or in Tassie, there is a one nursery that I know of. It may be connected to the uni. Is there a nursery that the public can visit that's connected to the university? Uh, they have a herbarium. Mm. There was. I know that there's a at least one nursery that you can go to as a member of the public and buy Huon pine seedlings and I think king billy as well and they have woomeras as well. But you can grow and have this tiny pine tree that will live in this tiny pot because it, they take so long to grow. But yeah, we can you can buy them and just grow them. And I really want to get some of those really old pines. I mean, they they probably can grow in gardens. I don't I don't know. I don't know if they're like the no, but 
because these are really small, like yeah. they will you could probably keep it in a pot because yeah. these people have grown it. They're yeah. allowed to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's pro- like it's protecting that species and Yeah. Because they take so long to grow, I don't know what anyone will do with my King Billy and Hugh and Pine <laughs> when I die because it'll probably only be like a meter tall. Um, but you can do that. Yeah, okay. And I'd really like to. Yeah. You'd have to see. I think you have to really take care of them. Like I know, uh, so the the um, the fagus, the deciduous fagus, the um, I'm having a total. I know the scientific name, Northophagus gunnoi. Um, I didn't. <laughs> She's showing off. Uh, like the uni has tried to propagate them in other places, and it's failed. They need a specific environment, and I I kind of wonder if King Billy would be the same. I don't know. I heard. In a, it was a, like a, a segment on Gardening Australia. Yeah. They were talking about it and said that you could buy the seedlings. I okay. don't know if they would grow very mm, well. They might, yeah. But um, they might down your way in the cold. Yeah, maybe. It well, might not be cold enough, but it would be nice to, even if you were in pine, it would be nice to have them. Yeah. If you could. Yeah. If you I had have the no knowledge. idea. Yeah. yeah. There is a nursery where you can buy them. Cool. So I'd like to, if, uh, yeah, I'd like to find out about them. I reckon it's the one up above Waterworks, the one up in um, – we did go there and do botany classes. Mm. Um, yeah, up at um, – I want to say Fern Tree, not Fern Tree. Ridgeway. There's a nursery up at Ridgeway and they do native plants. I reckon mm. it's that one. Yeah, there was one or two down, down here. Mm. Yeah. And I can't remember where they are now. But okay. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, you could. And I, because I just don't know enough about the actual, maybe I should do King Billy Pine in one of the episodes. Because I obviously have a, uh, that's who represents my uh, God being in my tree of life. Like my tree is him. And when I picture Keta, that's what I picture is my, is my King Billy. No one touch my King Billy. No. <laughs> I think she needs to buy one of those trees. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so the other thing that's really cool about these guys is that they she oaks about she oaks. We've moved on. Yes, we've talked about she oaks. <laughs> cool thing about she oaks is that they are wind pollinators, which is oh. old fashioned. Oh. That's what it said. Old fashioned. So uh, bees are modern. You know those big showy flowers. Are they like a, a Ferrari or something? I think so. And then like or like something new, like a Tesla. And then, uh, so these guys, these guys, yeah, sure, let's gender them. Well, they, anyway, um, they (laughs) spread spores and seeds with wind. So this could be a really important elemental association. Ah. I did think about that. Yes. So just, you know, so this is why I'm going through this stuff because it's, you know, the fact that they can live in a variety of environments suggests that they're good for adaptability or like, you know, something that you might need to work on. So we'll talk about that at the end. Okay. Tassie. Tassie, we only have Alakasharina species. Okay. So there's seven and four of them are endemic to here and three aren't. So the Alakasharina crassa, which is Cape Pillar she-oak. I wonder where that's endemic to. Mm. Uh, Duncanai, which I bet was named after a person. Mm. Conical she-oak, that's endemic. Littoralis, which is black she-oak. I've heard of them. Uh, yep, that's one of the ones I'm going to talk about. Cool. Yeah, so they're found all over Australia, sort of east coast mostly. Mm. Um, then there's Monoliferia, which is necklace she-oak, 
which is endemic, but this is one of the edible species as well. So, again, do your research. Um, Supposedly. According to Eat, uh, Eat Wild Tasmania, it's edible. <laughs> Try and find at least three more sources that say that. <laughs> exactly. And I couldn't find any of the, like, uh, food grade information that I could find for wattles, but it's mm-hmm. because it's not a species that's, you know, gone. Mm-hmm. Mainstream mm-hmm. edible. That's right. Yeah. Native mainstream edible. There's paludosa, which is a scrub she-oak, verticulata, which is the drooping she-oak. Oh, I think I've heard of that one too. Yeah, that's the other one I'm going to talk about, so I'm going to focus Ah. on those two. (laughs) I'm so great. (laughs) And then the zephyria, which is the western she-oak, which is also endemic, so it's found on the west coast. So I'm just going to concentrate on littoralis and verticulata because they are – uh, you know, the ones that I could find the most information about. They're also the ones that had more Indigenous information. There was a lot of information about the Cacharinas uh, as their own species as opposed to the Alocacharinas, so uh, particularly for the mainland, but because we don't have them down here, I'm not going to talk about them. <laughs> okay. I'm really sorry this is long. I might have to cut it down. Okay, so Alocacharinas. <laughs> you have the power. <laughs> I do have the power. Alocasharinas have hard wood um, and it's been used for thousands of years for making tools. So a lot of tools like um, boomerangs are made from she-oak or like the shields or, you know, clubs, that kind of thing. So as well as, you know, after colonization, it's been used to make like axe hammers and things like that. So did they just, build ships with it? They did make boats with cool. some species. Yeah, mm. yeah. It's now more popular with wood turners, so like, you know, wood turners love them. And for making fence posts really randomly, that kind of thing. So yeah. Apparently it makes great firewood because it leaves very little ash when it burns. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And they're not very fire resistant. So fire comes through the area, it'll wipe out all the seedlings. So oh, so mm. that's the only other thing. But yeah, they are apparently uh make great firewood, which also made me think about maybe they'd make a good Yule log. But don't you want the ash from a Yule log? It leaves ash, just not much ash. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. But apparently it burns really hot. And they're mostly used to stabilize erosion. So like – Oh, in the poor soil. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So like things like sand dunes that are really suffering from erosion, they'll plant alocasharinas to help stop it from eroding away and that kind of thing. So they're actually incredibly useful in that way. All right, so the black she-oak, the um, Alocasharina littoralis, they can grow 8 to 15 metres um, in total, although it tends to be a bit rarer that it actually hits that mark. Uh, 80 centimetres a year, so that's one of the fast growers. Um, it has red flowers uh, in spring, late spring, early summer, and the males cluster at the tip of branchlets. So sometimes they can be red, rust, yellow, depending on the species. So, and it's just right. Like think of like the last tip of the, of a pine needle, for example, is what is like maybe for like two, three centimeters. These ones are found in Queensland, New South Wales, ACT, Victoria, and Tasmania. And they have the widest latitudinal gradient of any species in Australia. So I thought that was pretty cool. And they're a critical food source for the glossy black cockatoos. Yay, black cockatoos. They they literally eat like 
all of it. <laughs> yeah, and they will spend like 88% of their day foraging for this seed. So like there's a problem with people wiping these trees out and, of mm. course, it's caused the glossy black cockatoos to become uh, endangered. So, yes, I've got to check that they're endangered. I'm pretty certain they're endangered, but, but they're, they're definitely threatened. So these seeds can be eaten. So what you do is you take an unripened capsule like an unopened capsule like this yep. and you stick it in a bag and it'll eventually drop all the seeds. And oh, okay. when it's dropped all the seeds, you can see how that's open. It does look like a teeny tiny pine cone. It, it does, yeah. So mm, it opened like kind really, of – Like really, really small. It, yeah, and it drops all the seeds and then that's what you can eat. So oh. I accidentally did this. So I had some of this on my altar. I had some cones on my altar and because I just felt like that's where it should go. And then I came in one day and all the seeds had been dropped out and I just had masses of seeds on my altar. So, yeah, anyway. That that sounds like quite sim- symbolic and significant. I think so. That was the first time I realised that that's what they did. <laughs> Apparently I didn't learn that in botany. Okay, so, um, yeah, so keep them in a paper bag for a few days or a few weeks and the seeds will drop out. So, yeah, you don't want them too old, though, because then they'll be a bit shriveled. In uh, Wurundjeri, I said that wrong, Wurundjeri language, it's they're called a Wayatuck, and the Wurundjeri people ate the cones. They used the bark in medicines, and apparently they used them in magic, but I couldn't find that information because it's you know a living They're, culture yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I shouldn't say they did it they do it like yes. I'm sure they still do it today the knowledge is still within their communities the people, yeah. Yeah. yeah so it's not a passing which is a bit of big problem when people are talking about indigenous cultures in Australia these mm. cultures still exist they might yeah. have been you know put to near extinction with yeah. genocide but, but i mean a lot of still... a lot of the the, the indigenous peoples of a lot of places there are still those people there. exactly and they're still practicing their practices yeah. so you know. and even if they're completely not which i can't actually think of any that aren't there would still be people within those groups who have that knowledge so it's still there exactly so they have the knowledge within the group if so yeah. if i say past tense slap me because it should be put, put, i'll in be present ready tense. yay Hand Go ready <laughs> And then I won't notice. <laughs> Not helpful at all. <laughs> um, so they used the wood was used for boomerangs, clubs, and shields, as I mentioned. Some of the species are before um, in the Eat Wild Tasmania book. It said that the green cones have a lemony taste, oh. and um, and the fresh young like leaves, column leaves, the branchlets, mm. they uh, can be eaten as well, and they apparently taste lemony as well are they officially called branchlets we wouldn't call that like a needle they didn't say needle they said okay. branchlets every okay. in all the scientific papers but i don't okay. know if that was saying the whole thing, thing? like i want to say frond yeah <laughs> it's not a frond it's, it's a branchlet not. i think okay yeah it's a nice term i like it. yeah <laughs> it's almost like a bracelet it's a branchlet yeah. The so the gum and resins are edible. Mm. Apparently, if you want to release the seeds quicker uh, from the cones, you can heat them in the oven at 120 degrees. Imagine your oven full of those tiny seeds. Oh my god, you wouldn't want them to go anywhere, no. would you? Maybe uh, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, if you tap them, then they fall out. So okay. yeah. that's all right then. Yeah, and apparently they have like a nutty flavor, so okay. uh, more mild compared mm. to say acacia, but. Uh, yeah, to cool. waddle, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in the book, there's an apple crumble recipe. So, yay, page eighty-five. So, if you want to know stuff about eating them, look at that book. Yeah, don't trust us by Reese Campbell. 
Okay, so now I'm going to talk about the droopy she-oak. That's mm-hmm. the verticulata. And it's going to be a little bit tricky to talk about because there was heaps more information oh. about this. So it's a little bit – I had to pick it from a few different places. So mm-hmm. it's hard to make it flow. But um, – This is an in, this was one of the endemic ones for here. No, this no, is one of the – the uh, up the east coast of one. Australia. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the droopy she-oak benefits um, to the Barable tribe is that the hard timber, as we've heard before, they have these massive like preamble canopies which help reduce – so preamble, like big, long, droopy canopies. Hence hence the name. Yeah, okay. and they reduce wind speed through like ah. – so sometimes people plant these for like um, – Wind breaks. Wind breaks, yep. yeah. Um, and they prov- provided really good shade mm. as well as really good visibility when hunting. Um, and ah. because the litter – remember how I said the litter falls on the ground and it mm. creates a mat? Apparently the kangaroos would go and – or kangaroos do. Mm. They still do. Yeah. <laughs> they haven't lost their culture either. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, so they go and lay in these forests, which is ah. why they're good hunting grounds for ah. them. And – Interestingly, so I have uh, a she-oak forest on my property. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where my wallabies go and hang. Like if I need to go find them because they're – I don't know, I haven't seen them for a couple of days, I'm worried they're dead, (laughs) I usually find them in the she-oak forest. So That's so cute. And the other thing that's really cool is apparently snakes avoid it. They don't like the fallen needles because it gets into their little – uh, on their bellies where their little scales are and causes ah, irritation. So apparently yeah. they avoid it. Because it is the, they are quite thin and small. That's right. They're like pine needles, like they're little. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. branchlets. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. So there's also apparently like lots of things like edible lilies and herbs thrive in she-oak woodlands, so that's mm. good for harvesting other foods. Um, the seeds make flour. Um, apparently the immature cones that taste lemony are really good sources of vitamin C, so that tracks. Maybe that's why they taste lemony. Yeah, maybe that is why. Um, the branchlets um, were chewed to treat diarrhea and also like in places that are really dry to moist, to help moisten the mouth. Uh, so in ah. drought environments it was like a way when water was scarce to help um, – I read two conflicting things, so I don't know which one is accurate, but one was it helped bring saliva on and the other one said it helped knock back your thirst. So I don't really know which was true. But I think if if it helped produce saliva, that might lead to your thirst being lessened a little. Yeah, I'm not sure. Once it 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 made the dryness bearable, I don't know. It was really weird. Well, on that, I take medication that makes my mouth really dry. Yeah, and I think I'm thirsty a lot. Yeah, when I'm not. So maybe that's why. Maybe that makes sense to me. And maybe I should just eat cherry branchlets. The drooping one. (laughs) The drooping one. Yeah. There's heaps at the uni, by the way. Mm. Um, and like I was walking in the rain the other day, and I, I. there was a drooping she-oak that covers the footpath and it was completely dry underneath. Oh, wow. So, like, they're really yeah, cool. cool like that. If you see me out on the lawn, like, eating trees, <laughs> just come and kick me. Um, there was an infusion of the inner bark um, used to as a gargle for toothaches. Oh. And I assume people have got to stop using past tense. They still do, I'm sure. And apparently they're really good for bees. Like, the bees love the oh. pollen, even though they don't help disperse the the pollen 
yeah. for breeding. For them, yeah. They still actually um, use it. And apparently when it's uh, a drought time, sheep will eat the branchlets as well. So, again, it kind of tracks with that, you know, low water and low food yeah. and eating it. Um, so the Watharong people soak the cones and add them to drinking water ah. to give a lemon flavor and also vitamin C. And some of the she-oaks develop – I don't know if this is all she-oaks or just certain species, but they develop hollows in the trunks which can be tapped into and water can be found. So that's why – So in, in the trunk? In the actual of- trunk of the oh, tree. Cool. Yeah. Okay. And one of the things that I saw someone else mention was that unlike eucalyptus, which drop their branches haphazardly, she-oaks <laughs> don't do that, so they're really good for camping under. Ah, okay. Yeah. That's kind of important. Don't camp under oak. Uh, no. Eucalypts. Do camp under <laughs> she-oaks, but not under eucalypts. That's something that I always forget. Yeah. It's like, oh, we're going to go camping and, like, there's, there's eucalypts around. It's very typically Australian and you could die. And maybe it's, like, safe because of, like, the snakes not being there as well. <laughs> I oh, don't wow. know. <laughs> like, That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, but they attract insects, so I don't know. Ugh. You gotta, you gotta win. Think about which way you want to win that. So these ones, they uh, apparently the pollen will travel like a kilometer to. This is still wind dispersal for these guys. Yeah, well. yep. yep. So all casuarinas have wind yep. dispersal. Yeah, all all that. They're family. all old fashioned. Yeah, so they are all old fashioned. Um, yeah, so the the, the pi- male pollen will travel like a kilometre to fertilise female flowers. Oh, wow. Yeah, so the only other things I'll mention is that this one's edible as well. Um, mature cones can be powdered and used for sores and rheumatism. So I should go and lick those ones as well. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good <laughs> idea. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> go lick plants and make yourself sick or die. <laughs> So the Watharong people use the word – I can't say this word. It's like witcheru, which apparently describes the sound the the leaves make when wind blows oh, through the that's foliage. Cool. So that's Have the, you got the spelling? Spell it out. W-I-T-J-W-E-I-R, witcheru, witchery, yeah. witchery maybe, witchery. Okay, yeah. But you've spelled it out. It's that spelling. Yeah. If someone knows how to say it, please tell us. Yeah, it's um, it's really cool. So that's the Watharong word. Indigenous people believe that the voices of the ancestors can be heard in the rustling of the foliage. So with the awesome name, that's excellent. I love it. Yeah. So if um, you want to communicate with past loved ones, it's a place to go and ask questions and and get advice from your ancestors. So I'm not encouraging people to go out and do this because it's a close practice like it belongs to an active current thing but it's Mm. it's interesting to know that Mm. um and weirdly like I actually picked some of this and put it in my ancestor older so without even Mm. knowing and I just you know so you know anyway and and following on from that like other ancestor work might be a good thing you know you have some of the cones or the branchlets if you have one close by yeah but yes maybe not a direct usage of someone else's yeah practice exactly yeah. but still ancestor work it sounds like it's a it's a i think mm. like for me i certainly felt that yeah so it's yeah so the drooping of the the branchlets allows for the living to hear past ancestors speak to them much better i just want to talk a little bit about the modern magical properties that i read so on this drilled down under blog Ooh. post from 2009 
The properties were listed as that they're always found by water. So she oaks are always found by water. That's not true. So they maybe the species that they've been working with in the area that they live are found by water. Well, you said there was up to 91, so... Yeah. Yeah. So I think, like, be aware of what's in your region and and, uh, so, yeah. Um, And because of this water association, apparently um, she oaks are sacred to mermaids, oceanic wisdom, rivers, lakes, tides, fishing, sea creatures, femininity, the moon, and mother of waters. So it's very water-themed. For me, I actually feel like it's more wind-themed, mm. and ma- and that's maybe because of the species on my block. Yeah. But then the dispersal of seeds, you said all of them disperse in the wind, so. Yeah. So mm. I think, I think like, yeah, just I, I think that there's more that we can learn about this species other than what's been learned, and we should – talk together like Mm. if people have a feeling towards she oaks and about how they feel and stuff i'd really love to hear it please email us and let us know and i mean the other thing is if you know of a she oak and you feel it's water association go with that exactly it's fine there's nothing wrong with it it's just not the way that i have found myself associating with it in Mm. saying that this was by the river well but they can grow anywhere (laughs) so you know and i think that comes back to and you said you were going to talk about it. Yeah. What I said a little bit earlier, like go out and talk talk to them. Yeah. See, see what it communicates with you, whichever plant you want to work with. And if you if you felt it had a fire association, yeah. the wood burns at a high temperature, exactly. that's something that you attach to, yeah. then use that. Or earth because it's a tree and yeah. it makes furniture and tools and, you know, stuff like that. So, you know, maybe it covers all the elements. Yeah. They probably do. They all have all associations. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, like I think I think just giving it a a water alone is a bit simplistic maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, not saying it's wrong, just maybe a bit simplistic. Uh, so on ozflowers.com.au uh, they had bushflower essence for sale uh, and they said that uh, she oak is good for overcoming emotional imbalances, bringing a sense of well-being in women in particular or – I guess women, women identifying, identifying personages. Um, the ben- and so the essence that they made were from female plants in this case. So I'd okay. be curious to know if it would be different if it was essence from a male plant. Like, I don't know. Anyway. So does that mean they went and got they, – they made this essence from actual female – I reckon they made them from the female flowers. That would be my yeah. guess. I don't it know how like else. A, it wasn't a, a, a plant that's associated with the feminine. That's not what you meant. No. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, like it was, yeah. Said that it was actually female plants. Yeah, they yep, took yep, it yep. from the female presenting. Yeah, yep, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they said that there are, that this plant could be really beneficial for people who feel uncomfortable about their fertility status, ah. so help maybe com- make you come to terms with it a bit easier. Um, and apparently in conjunction with flannel flower, it can help remove karmic patterns hindering conception so again it's about Mm. that kind of stuff uh and part of the reason they thought that is because uh fruit of the of like the cones they're about the size of an ovary so an ovary is two and a half to five centimeters long they're that tiny and they gave me that much pain (laughs) yes yes those bitches oh god (laughs) (laughs) so i i thought maybe uh 
if we feel like it, maybe we could sit with parts of the plant and see if we feel anything, if you are up for that. Yeah, we could do that. Yeah? Yeah. Should I pause while we do it? (laughs) All right, so we've just done some meditating on uh, the species of she oak that we have. I actually don't know what species it is. Okay. Mm -hmm. I uh, didn't didn't do the identifying, Mm -hmm. Um, but I think they're two different species. So what did you get? Um, I got, as what normally happens with when I meditate on something, I just, I often get, um, images of, of whatever it is I'm meditating on. I don't usually get messages. <sighs> Sometimes I do, but I, I often just get, so if I'm meditating on a stone or a piece of a, a plant, I get a personification of it. So... For this one, I got the impression that they were related. Uh-huh. So there was a really clear indication to me that they were related. The female part of the plant was older. Uh-huh. And the male plant was quite young. Uh-huh. And it was really family orientated. I just got this happy, joyful group and a lot of like touching, but it was like the fronds, the branchlets sort of brushing against me. But it was like the two people that I saw touching me, but it was like a, a branchlets brushing like my head. And I really just got um, the message to be good but be joyful. That, oh. that was all. But they were just really happy and really contented and just said, you know, they just wanted, generally wanted people to be happy. Be good but be joyful. Yeah, so that's what I got. So I'm about to blow your mind. Mm. these plants were touching and thought so they were two separate plants yes yeah yeah um and they were um yeah they were just very close to each other growing on the rock i actually got mother with child but possibly not but it was like protector the female plant was looking after the smaller younger Male plant. I interpreted that as direct relation, but that might not have been right. The other plant was much bigger than yeah. the okay. other one. So, <laughs> yeah, you're you're on the ball with that. I was fingering. That sounds wrong. I was <laughs> touching intimately <laughs> the cones um, and I got this overwhelming sense of, um, I can't even remember what I said now, Um like new new beginnings new, in trying times new beginnings in trying times so like mm. being able to grow and find i guess the ability to grow even when things may be not in its most optimum way and um yeah that's that was my my message from that but that was also where they were growing did you say like in a quite like mm. on a rock they were growing on the rock face of yeah, uh, flat rock. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that obviously that energy's come through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, this I definitely if I feel like something is difficult, but I need to use the energy. I will definitely feel comfortable using this plant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In my spell work. Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly what we said before. You know, if you if you get something. Then go with it. 
And I mean, you know, you might meditate with this plant in a, if in a few days, a few weeks' time, and it will be a different message and you might feel a different association, which is fine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it can be anything. Like this person obviously got uh, in the Druid blog the water stuff. So maybe their plant they were they were working with had was at a river or an ocean or because they are quite coastal. So, uh, yeah, I think that these are pretty mm. – wicked plants yeah and i mean even along those lines it might have been for that plant where it was growing the water was really important to the plant i mean water is important to plants but it might have been strongly influencing that particular plant where this person got the association from rather than the an affinity for this group of plants it might have just been where it was like you say Mm. yeah it uh yeah um, yeah, no, Alakasharina, I, I rate it. I think it's a cool plant. The oaks are cool. And, um, yeah, I really would love to know if you work with she-oaks and if you have other feelings or how they work or how you incorporate them in the pra- in your practice. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I really would love to know. I'd like to know if you work with any Australian native plants, in, really, and what you do. Because it's it's there's not there's information, but it's there's not heaps of it. It's not like you can go and get a magic book on Australian native plants, really. And it's all like you know, a, it's a personal gnosis, I guess, which mm. is what matters is yeah. how it's going to work in your own spirituality. But um, I'm curious to see what other people get and to meditate on that. And yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, maybe we should put a blog post up. We should finally get the blog going and put something up about this. So, yeah, anyway. And, yeah, well, it would be a really good resource, I think. Like even just the little bits and pieces that we've done. Well, I think you've done more native Australian plants than I have. So, But I think that's important because it's hard to find. And, yes, it may be personal, but it may spark something in someone else, even if for them it's completely different, like the water association. Yeah, maybe they Mm. think it's. You know, maybe someone will think it's um, you know, all the ancestor stuff. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, this isn't droopy she oak though, so I don't know no. if that makes a difference. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, if you do want to reach out to us, you can find us on Instagram at witchy.bites. Mm-hmm. You can also find us on Facebook. We've actually connected the account, so if you email us at one, we'll get it at the other. It's yes. fine. <laughs> <laughs> and you can also email us at witchy.bytes at outlook.com. And, um, yeah, I guess we'll catch you at the next one. 24. Woohoo! Oh, I think we might actually have a tipsy tale between now and the next episode true true, that is true which we haven't recorded yet so it's a mystery to us as well (laughs) well we hope your your next loon or well solar eclipse goes well and we'll catch you next time absolutely Bye. bye